Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today's the big day as they prepare the liberal budget for another pandemic-era budget. How do they plan to balance the promises made during the volatility of an uncertain world? Well, we'll talk about that. And as the U.S. rolls out a new wave of financial sanctions against Russia, some Americans seem to be very disconnected to the global impact of the war. Brian J. Karen, political commentator with CNN, will join us to talk about that. And calls for making sports a safer, more inclusive, and welcoming space are not new, but they seem to be getting louder. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Right now, it's budget, budget, budget. And later on this afternoon, Finance Minister Christia Freeland will rise in the House and deliver uh, actually their first budget since the election last fall uh, because of COVID. And uh, lots of speculation about what's going to be happening. Uh, the Trudeau Liberals are set to introduce the federal budget this afternoon. And you can expect some big spending on everything from health care to the military. Sarah Ritchie has details. The Liberals had a lot to consider in drafting this year's spending plan. The pandemic, rising inflation, the war in Ukraine, not to mention all the promises they made on the campaign trail and the more recent pledges to the NDP in return for passing this budget. All of that adds up to billions more in spending on housing, pharmacare, dental care, climate change and defense. It's expected the government will look to the big banks for extra revenue in the form of an excess profits tax. The good news for the bottom line is that the economy is doing better than expected and oil prices are high. The budget will be released at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Sarah Ritchie, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Uh, so much to unpack here because we're not sure just what the direction is going to be. I remember back in the day, of course, you know, this was the, the most secretive documents, and anybody who leaked anything usually got fired for, for doing that. Uh, now, because of all the leaks, of course, that are recurring, we've got a fairly good idea what's going to be in this, although there's you know, some speculation about the budget amounts, etc. But we already know, uh, because of the uh, agreement between the, uh, the Liberals and the NDP, uh, that some of the stuff that uh, the NDP had asked for, and uh, you know, for this deal to happen, is going to be in there. Uh, the, uh, of course, the daycare program's already been signed, sealed, and delivered now that Ontario being the last jurisdiction to sign on to that. Uh, but there's the pharmacare, there's a dental care program. Let's face it, the crisis with housing these days is a national problem, and we need to talk about that. Uh, is the government going to address that in, in, in how big a way? Uh, to try to sift through all this, so so pleased to welcome back to the program Muhammad Ali, Senior Consultant for the Crestview Strategy Group. Uh, Muhammad, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's talk a little bit about what uh, we're expecting here. I, I, any word we get, of course, is from unnamed sources, I know, because they don't really want to you know, say, hey, I'm the source of the leak. But we're told that by some in the, in the finance department that they, they're going to call this the, the housing budget, uh, which is certainly, I guess, addressing one of the, the key needs and, and one of the key crises, I think, facing us now. Yeah, you know, obviously the, the housing crisis is, is top of mind. I know that the finance minister is really committed to, and as we've seen in some of the leaks, come out of a $10 billion uh, housing plan that's going to come out, which includes a, a ban on foreign home ownership for two years. I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, there was, it was uh, committed to in their platform. And, but they also got, um, you know, funding towards affordable housing, addressing homelessness, uh, and spurring in, uh, construction of, of homes, the average home for, for Canadians across the country to help uh, modernize the, the approval zoning permitting processes municipalities desperately need to uh, use to, to make quicker decisions. So, uh, you know, I think that's a clear recognition that uh, after, you know, basically two years of people kind of freaked out about how housing is way out of reach for, for most Canadians, and especially young Canadians and new Canadians, uh, an ambitious big plan 
that will drive more immediate results is is much needed. With the, the analysis that you guys have done uh, at Crestview about this, uh, you know, first, the, the two-year ban on foreign ownership. And by the way, that says you mentioned only on residential properties. And and there are some people that are going to be exempted, uh, students, uh, people that are, are residents of this country, etc. But is that really addressing a problem? I know it's a problem in Vancouver and probably in Toronto, too. But is it going to fly and is it going to have much of an impact, if any impact, on, on many of the other communities across the country that are still suffering from, from a housing crisis? You know, it's it's going to have some a bit of a cascading effect, right? Like one of the challenges that people have experienced and in, in some of the trends that you see is, you know, once things are so priced out in Toronto and in Vancouver, uh, they're moving to other cities. They're moving to the Kitchener-Waterloo, they're moving to the Hamiltons, they're moving to Ottawa. Uh, then, you know, in some communities, especially with the pandemic, are able to kind of move, you know, other places and work virtually. So you're seeing sort of that real estate boom happening in other provinces like Nova Scotia with Halifax, you're seeing Brunswick, Moncton as well. So it's it's had a cascading effect when home purchasing has been done at, at a level, but also, you know, sometimes some of these foreign homes, foreign owned homes are actually sitting empty. So you're not even getting people into the homes to maybe rent, but you're just, you effectively block people out who just need a place to live. And I can see that, and we've talked to a number of people in the business that are, are relating those stories, and I, it's it's a, a crisis situation. It's it's almost trickle-down, though, okay? We're going to give money to the provinces, we're going to give money to the municipalities, and hopefully these guys can work it out. But it's a little more complicated than that, isn't it? Because there's, there's red tape that can be cut at all three levels of government. Yeah, I mean, red tape doesn't ever help with this situation, and I think it's... Uh, th- this budget, as you're seeing, that's being outlined right now early on is... Uh, a recognition that it's not simply cutting a check, but it's more, it's targeted towards the things that could actually accelerate, not just the immediate, but also long-term. I mean, I go back to the um, $4 billion towards municipalities to revamp their systems so that they can make uh, more efficient decision-making, uh, cut some of the red tape uh, at the at the municipal level to for home construction, whether it's for condos, single family size, multi-unit, whatever it may be. Uh, that's a clear recognition that, you know, it wasn't simply just pumping money to to build a house. It's also how quickly can the approval happen to build a house? You know, time's of the essence and Canadians are getting pinched. You know, there was a recent uh, polling that came out that showed that, you know, uh, 30 to 40 percent of new Canadians are now reconsidering whether they want to live in Canada because they just simply can't afford a home. They can't afford to live in the cities that they need to, uh, whether that be in the greater Toronto area, the Ottawa, Vancouver, Calgary, wherever. Uh, you know, that's that's going to have some cascading effects uh, on the economy. And so it's it's I'm, I'm glad to see that there is some early indications of what sort of a broad approach uh, and broad sort of intentional thinking uh, on the housing issues being done with this budget so far. But they seem to have sometimes being at working at cross purposes. And I understand the Bank of Canada is an arm's length. It's not run by the government. But they've already announced that they're probably going to raise rates of, well, certainly next week and perhaps a couple of weeks after that again, uh, which is only going to make it more difficult. So, and, and I'm looking at some of the stuff that uh, that we've been able to ascertain from you know some of the leaks that are in Ottawa. Uh, the creation of a new tax-free home savings account uh, that allow Canadians to save up to $40,000 and enjoy tax advantages. Is, is that going to have an impact on that aspect of it? You know, it's, it, that's an interesting, uh, you know, policy uh, push that the government made. From what I understand, it's sort of going to be parallel to what the RSP kind of accomplishes. So as we know, the RSP, you can spend about 35% of it, or sorry, 35,000 of it uh, for your first home purchase, uh, but you have to pay it back. Uh, 
because it's and it's tax free. So whatever you contribute, the tax free home savings account will kind of run in parallel, except you can uh, use up to forty thousand towards a first uh, first time home purchase, and there's no requirement for it to be paid back, similar to an RSP. So you know it'll allow people, and it's and it's targeted towards those forty and under. I think it allows uh, more flexibility and sort of recognition that the investment made into a home is, is often also a long-term retirement, a long-term savings kind of uh, you know, planning. And by having a, a different savings account, it allows a little bit more sort of target approach so that you're not, you know, you use your RSP, then you got to pay that back at the same time you're paying for a mortgage. You know, that is, that is tough for any, any, any individual, any family. So this sort of alleviates some of that pressure on, on the middle class and lower middle class Canadians who want to purchase their first home that aren't able to at this point. Let's uh, pivot, if we could, over to military spending. A very contentious issue. Certainly, but the, it's been exacerbated by what's going on in Ukraine and, and the NATO commitment, of course, to try to help Ukraine in every way possible. Uh, there is going to be increased defense spending, um, which my numbers indicate here. That's I think we're at what, what, 1.3, I think, is it, Mohammed? And I believe these numbers will bring it up to 1.5. Uh, that's nowhere near the 2%. Uh, the, you know, the numbers to, to actually attain that are astronomical right now. Is, is this, they say this is going to be a good first step. Is, is, is that going to fly? I think it's, it's a good first step. You know, honestly, I think they're seeing some of the early messaging coming out that, you know, we're not Germany and Poland. We're not like, you know, basically bordering Russia and, and being right in the hotspot where 2%, you know, a, a, a commitment that was made by NATO allies uh, long ago to meet uh, for defense spending. And, you know, I think it's, you're seeing some of that message that, you know, we're not, we're not there yet, but, Moving to 1.5%, which we haven't been in for, for several years, is a good first step, particularly where they're going to be wanting to focus on the money is on NORAD. There are some, um, you know, some of the systems are going to be coming out, out of date soon. Uh, and when we think about uh, Arctic sovereignty and Arctic defense, uh, NORAD plays a critical role in that. And, and part of the reason Arctic defense is because Russia is on the other side of the Arctic for, for Canada and, and the United States. So... Uh, some of this money is going to go towards NORAD. Some of it's going to go towards better equipping uh, the Canadian military and, and also just being able to have the reserves of, of weaponry needed to uh, you know, support uh, our allies that are trying to fight you know, and protect their democracies like Ukraine is right now. You know, I think it's, it's important. And I think there was a needed sort of injection of, of money into the military after you know, basically decades of neglect uh, by successive governments. So you know, it, it, nothing can be solved all at once, as we as we know, and there's still budget constraints. And this is a new sort of area that uh, the government has to kind of deal with. Expect a new defense policy review as well. That's sort of updating from what 2017's plan was, uh, recognizing what the new geopolitical concerns are. So uh, I think this is this is all positive right now where the government is trending on. When we had a conversation with the NDP leader Jagmeet Singh about this uh, just uh, earlier this week, and and he. I asked him specifically, are you opposed to increased military spending? And he says, no, but I'd rather that it was on what he called military infrastructure. As you say, uh, better equipment for NORAD uh, and, and upgrading the uh, materials used by uh, by our Canadian forces. It kind of sounds like that's where Christia Freeland's going with that from, from what we've been able to ascertain yet so far. Yeah, and, and, you know, there's that delicate balance, you know, as we've talked about with the Liberal NDP agreement. Uh, the NDP are not are not fond of, um, expanding the military per se, um, whereas the liberals and conservatives uh, recognize the importance of the military and our role in the world. So I think you're, you're finding a delicate balancing act there. Um, 
but you know, adding more equipment, making sure we're modernized, making sure we have the training we need. Uh, you know, we're also short on actual military personnel uh, right now. I think we're about ten thousand short. So there, there's a, a a number of areas, both on infrastructure, on equipment, and personnel that we need to do, and and also just on, uh, you know, we have to work on our our naval uh, vessels, the fighter jet program. You know that that's got to get take off unintended, um, as well. So uh, there is a, a number of areas to to infuse uh, investment into, and in the longest time, the army and the military had to scale back or delay spending on certain equipment that was needed for, for our troops to be protected on the battlefield, uh, that those decisions will now be able to be addressed after years of years of cuts. There's another line here that jumped out at me. I wanted to get your read on this. It's like suggesting that uh, this budget is uh, going to return the Liberal government to a more normal spending level when it comes to budgets. Uh, I, I guess that's in the eye of the beholder necessarily because, I've, you know, with the dental plan and the pharmacare that they've talked about and the increase in military spending, are they talking about maybe, you know, phasing out a lot of these support programs that have been in place for the last couple of years because of COVID? Yeah, you're going to probably see a little bit of that phasing out of, of the COVID support programs. Uh, the economy has largely or basically recovered. Uh, we've had more jobs now uh, than we did in February 2020. Uh, so there's there's a clear recognition. And also inflation has, has played an X factor. Uh, there's only so much money they want to be pumping into the into the uh, into the economy that can further inflame uh, in, uh, the inflation stru- uh, pain that Canadians are facing. But also, you know, to the point of return to, you know, you're going to see some of this language of return back to basics uh, by the government. Uh, you know, remember of what 2015 was like, you know, uh, helping the middle class and those working hard to join that, that kind of messaging. Uh, you'll expect to see a little bit more of that, you know, and, and that's where you're seeing some of the, the plans laid out that are addressing that directly to them, sort of the retail politics that are needed in any budget. Um, and, you know, the fiscal guardrails are important because the business community has been calling for it for a very long time. Uh, and after two years of very un, extremely unprecedented spending, uh, needed spending though, uh, there's there's going to be that debt to GDP ratio that declined that the government has had ran on before. Uh, you know the deficit they were spending is ensuring that they're not uh, further burdening the, the the economy and its fiscal health, uh, returning to that sort of normalcy of uh, fiscal planning, budget planning, uh, but also a long-term target towards returning to that uh, that 30 below 30 percent of that debt to GDP ratio that they were trying to strive for before the pandemic well it's uh, going to be interesting to see the reaction from chambers of commerce and other business leaders uh, later on this afternoon Mohammed always a pleasure thank you so much for uh, prognosticating with us just a little bit I'm sure we'll talk again in just a couple of days after we get some hard numbers take care thanks for having me happy budget day you too Mohammed Ali senior consultant with uh, Crestview strategies You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. In light of the atrocities that were uncovered uh, in Kiev after uh, the Russian troops uh, rolled back and uh, Ukraine soldiers moved back in there, uh, the United States has responded, as as the UK and many other NATO nations. Uh, President Joe Biden says the Russian economy will feel the pain of new sanctions for years to come as a result of the invasion of Ukraine. Sagar Morgani has details. 
The U.S. is hitting Moscow with more sanctions over what the president says are war crimes, blocking two key banks and taking the fight to Vladimir Putin's family with sanctions on his two adult daughters. We're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. And stifle Russia's ability to grow for years. But the president warns the fight is far from over. This war could continue for a long time, but the United States will continue to stand with Ukraine, the Ukrainian people in the fight for freedom. Sagar Magani at the White House. Uh, strong words, maybe some of the strongest words Biden has used towards Vladimir Putin and uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, that long-term commitment that as long as it takes, they're going to be there. Similar comments, of course, from the, the NATO chief and others, uh, including Prime Minister Boris Johnson over in the UK. But is it that much more difficult for President Biden to be dealing with this uh, while well, he's got his own insurrectionists in his own country? Uh, well, let's talk about that. Uh, pleased to have back to the program Brian J. Karen. Brian, of course, is a political commentator for CNN, columnist for Salon.com and The Washington Diplomat. He's hosted the podcast called Just Ask the Question and the author of an incredible book uh, that I've really enjoyed. It's called Free the Press, The Death of American Journalism and How to Retrieve It. It's on uh, Prometheus Books. Brian, a pleasure to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Doing well. Always a pleasure to be here. It's glad to be back you. in the uh, safe part of the world where I don't have to wake up the air raid sirens every once in a while. Yeah, back in the <laughs> USA, yeah. Um, yeah. Let me ask you, uh, first of all, I want to talk about the sanctions, but I want to uh, first of all address uh, your piece in uh, Salon.com today, uh, which I think underscores uh, the, the dynamic of what's going on. And as usual with your reporting, you you peel back the layers and lift a few rocks and tell, here's the real story of what's going on here. Uh, you call the Putin caucus undermining Biden at home while Americans risk their lives in Ukraine. Uh, talk to us and tell our listeners about this. This is actually a story that I guess you uncovered while you were over there a while ago and talk to some of the uh, the volunteers. Well, yeah, I, a lot of the volunteers over there are not liberal. <laughs> they're very conservative and they're former Navy SEALs, former Rangers, former Marines, and they were not Biden fans and remain, you know, critical of Biden. But they've gained a respect for him uh, because he stood up with and they actually gained a huge respect for uh, Zelensky in Ukraine when he said, look, I don't need a ride. I, I, I need ammunition. And so that that brought them to the fore. And they've been there trying to get uh, women and children out of the country, trying to train some of the home guard, trying to train some of the military there. And they're working their butts off. So when uh, Biden came forward and said, you know, what everyone else in the world is thinking, basically that, you know, he, he said, for God's sakes, this man can't remain in power. And that won a lot of them over. And they are willing to help. And they and they believe in the in the cause and want to do what they can. And they're confused and upset with people on the home front particularly Marjorie Taylor Greene and, uh, you know, uh, people like her, Matt Gates and others who are giving the president grief and siding with Putin. And they find this to be anti-American. So it's a backlash from the very people who supported those who are in office now. And it's interesting, very interesting to see. And in point of fact, they say that, you know, most Americans just don't get what this is all about. While we're talking about this could be World War Three, they're saying it actually, in fact, already is. 
And, and you mentioned in the piece that, you know, we're, as you say, we're on the precipice if we haven't already started to fall off. Uh, but that's not the story Americans are getting, depending on where they get their information or lack thereof. Uh, you know, you listen to a Tucker Carlson, or as you mentioned, some of the senators, Josh Hawley and others, uh, and they're painting a much different picture. And you, you, I know you've said you've attended some rallies, some Trump rallies, and they're actually pro-Russian T-shirts right now. All, all of a sudden, in their minds anyway, Putin's the good guy here. Yeah, well, anybody but Biden is the good guy. So if they have to side with Putin, by gum, they will, because uh, they see uh, Biden and the Democrats as a greater threat to their way of life than Putin. And that's because they believe in an authoritarian lifestyle and they are racists. They are misogynists. They are anti-immigration. They are anti-constitution. The very constitution that this country was founded on is an anathema to certain people in this country who believe in authoritarianism. And it's um, they're making no bones about it. As I said in the piece, it's not a question as to whether or not we have Russian assets in American politics. It's a matter of whether they're witting or unwilling. And, and with the, the stuff that they're spreading right now, I mean, are they parroting some of the other stuff? Are these talking yeah, points? I mean, is or it, or it do they really believe it? Yeah, that's the, that is, is it misinformation? Or is it simply that they they actually believe this stuff? What about the idea, because you've talked about this, and you talk about it in the book, in the, the book Free the Press, about changing the channel. With what's going on in Ukraine right now, and, and it's it's a, such a dire circumstance, you were over there, you saw it firsthand, yet you've got Republicans in the Congress right now talking about Disney characters and, and pedophilia. And, of course, all Democrats are pedophiles. I mean, one of them went so far as to say that. Uh, they, they don't want Americans to focus on what's going on with Ukraine and, and the global picture. They want to look at, at what's going on here and how can you desecrate the, the Democratic brand? Well, a- exactly. And that plays to Putin's advantage. Making us divisive as, as ever creates an environment in which his disinformation can thrive. And that is what's behind all of it. And it's, you know, I, I, I came back from uh, Ukraine First day I was back was the night of the Oscars and people were talking about Will Smith and the slap heard around the world. And I just got back from a country where I, I was interviewing maimed people who were missing eyes and legs and um, they're, they're being exterminated by, you know, Russia. And it was just very hard for me to, to get into the, <laughs> forgive the saying, get into the swing of things. Because it just didn't resonate with me. I, I feel like at times we completely lose focus on what's important. Now, you, you can get upset about the slap, and certainly that's not anything I would ever teach. And, you know, but it, in a scheme of things, it's so unimportant compared to where we are globally. And the fact that we are involved in the Cold War has finally gone hot, as uh, Eric Swalwell told me last night yeah. uh, at a function in D.C., a congressman from the Oakland area. And that's where we're at in this world. We are on the precipice. And I, why I share feelings of people who think that, you know, you shouldn't be walking up to people and slapping them, you know, willy nilly. I also think it's more important to focus on the fact that you have a Russian autocrat who's trying to destroy the world and remake it in his image and is risking the, the extinction of the species of humans on this planet by doing so. So keeping that, keeping things focused into what's really important right now is, is I think, very tough for a lot of people. You've covered war zones in the past uh, for many, many years, of course, and I'm sure you've seen your share of, of hell 
you heard the stories about what was uncovered in Kiev and then when the Russians pulled back about what appeared to be uh, execution-style killings. Uh, some people, rooms of them shot at one time, hands tied behind their back. Have you ever seen anything as, as, as ugly and uh, just mind-blowing as this? No, and it's the largest land war in Europe since World War II. The Russians will not go gentle into that good night, but neither will the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians are very salty people, as I've said before. They are not going to lay down and roll over for Vladimir Putin. So Putin's only option at this point is he cannot conquer this country. He can only level it. And in doing so, impart as much pain, suffering, and torture as possible because people won't bend to his will. He's a bully. He's Donald Trump with more fire firepower. That's all he is. And they're standing up against him. And the reaction from the Russian military to the innocent civilians in Ukraine should be a clarion call for everyone on this planet. It's, you know, I keep saying this is the first uh, real war that's a, a social media war. I hope it exposes because everyone has a camera now. Everyone is is putting out this information for people to see. I'm hoping this ends the autocracy and the despotism that has plagued this planet since man crawled out of the cave. It just cannot be anymore. This is not the way we all can cooperate and thrive as a species. This is how we destroy our species. We are at a tipping point. Yeah, and putting political ideology against humanity, etc. Yes. It's mind-boggling. Uh, the piece that you wrote that, that's in Salon.com today, Folks can Google it and read the whole article. It's a fabulous article. But you talk about a guy, well, you call him Tom. And these are, as you mentioned, these are volunteers, many of them former military, uh, working for NGOs over there. Uh, and, and the difference between what Tom does during the day and the night are, are so radically different, but so very necessary. Yeah, and I don't think that people quite understand how involved it is and how difficult it is. And, you know, here are people who care about other people putting their lives on the line simply to save the innocent. I, I, I look at them and I, I just, I cannot fathom how you cannot be moved by that in, in a variety of ways. And it's frightening to me after spending so much time there that, you know, we just, in this country, we don't get it. And we're so removed from it. And it, to us, it's just another uh, chaotic signal, you know, on television uh, you can turn the channel and not see the war or turn the channel and see something else or turn the channel and, you know, find out that Putin's a good guy. I mean, whatever you want, you can see it on TV. And the problem is, is that's not reality. And so you need a good dose of reality for people to understand just how serious this is and how those people that are putting their lives on the line from the United States, from Canada, from Australia, from everywhere in NATO and everywhere, you know, all the allied nations and all the European nations, those people who believe in democracy and free speech and freedom of choice are there. And we're there by proxy, putting our their lives on the line to save others who are merely, as the mayor of Kiev told me, he said, we're just merely trying to stand up for the ideals that the rest of us claim that we live by. So how can you not rally to those people? And, and the ones that are over there, as you mentioned, volunteer. It's not a nine-to-five job. The, this Tom that you talk about, and that's, a, a, of course, a, just a, because he didn't want to give his, his real name out, you know, handing out supplies and food and, and all that very necessary stuff during the day. And, and, but at the end of the day, he doesn't punch out. I mean, essentially, he's 
he's really part of a mem- like a, a, an underground railroad, isn't he, Brian, to get people out yeah. of the country who want to get out. He's trying to help people, mostly women and children, the injured and the infirmed and the elderly. Uh, he told me a story one night of just uh, driving an 81-year-old elderly woman out of the country, and he was afraid because he was having to drive fast. He was afraid for her, and she said, look, just pass me chocolate. I'm fine. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's amazing those stories and uh, it it puts it in perspective and you're right I mean you know back home here we're complaining you know what I paid for my gasoline this week and there you're wondering you know, you know somebody who doesn't know where their family is because the place got bombed last week uh, yeah and, and know, let's it's, it's, even it's a, keep that let's keep that in context too how much do you pay a gallon for gasoline it's cheaper than what you're paying for your coffee at Starbucks so for the love of God relax a little bit. But everything they do, and because you tie in the domestic problems with certainly the global problems here too, it, it just seems as if the modus operandi for the Republicans, especially in Congress, and I, I suppose on Fox News, is everything that's wrong with your life is Joe Biden's fault. I mean, as you, I, I, I was shocked at that one line you had in the story. Uh, some of them are blaming Biden for the war in Ukraine that he started it. Yeah, well, that it only began because he became president. It wouldn't have begun if Trump were here. What a load of garbage! Um, that's to, you know, I, that is a logical fallacy called post hoc ergo propter hoc, which is because something followed something, the thing that came first caused the thing that came second. It's almost never true. And it isn't true in this case. This is a culmination of, uh, Vladimir Putin's uh, end game and goals since he, you know, came to the international forefront. He's always wanted to put back the Soviet Union. He's a former KGB officer who, did not like the fact that the Soviet Union lost the Cold War. And now in his waning days as a human on this planet, he's trying to assemble it and leave that as his legacy. Um, it's a strange legacy to want to leave. It's frightening that uh, it's happening and it has to end. Is this going to weaken Biden's position vis-a-vis support for Ukraine? I, I, I got the sense initially like over a month ago, I guess now, Brian, that even some of the staunchest Republicans were supportive of this. But if the end game here is to make sure that the Democrats get wiped out in the midterms later this year, how low are they going to go for that to happen? I think some of them will be willing to go very low. I talked to Richard O'Brien last night, former, uh, I'm Mr. Robert O'Brien, who's the uh, former NSC chief, who said that um, most Republicans are on board. It's only the weirdos like uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates. Some of those people who are very strong MAGA supporters of Trump who are against it. And they got called to task yesterday. Jamie Raskin, um, Democrat from my home state in Maryland, called Green out on the carpet and said, look, we understand there's a pro-Putin faction in in uh, the Republican Party. And if you want to continue to support him, go ahead. But the rest of us are moving forward against him. And there seems to be a majority of Republicans and Democrats who are who are on the same side in this. The real concern is how do you effectively strangle Vladimir Putin without encouraging a nuclear holocaust? And he has threatened it. He is a bully, and there's no doubt that he would do it. But at the same time, you can't let a bully get away with it just because he can. You have to find a way to 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 quell the bully. And in this case, it's uh, they're trying to strangle him with economic sanctions. The only thing, the biggest fault I would hold against Biden administration currently is They were donated planes by Poland. They need to get those planes to Ukraine so that the Ukrainians can use them to help secure their uh, their uh, their space, their sky Their You know, they want a a no fly zone. Americans cannot enforce it because that would be a shooting war with Russia. 
but the Ukrainians can if we get them the planes. And that seems to be the stumbling block right now. How do you get them the airplanes? The other side of that question is how far will Putin go? I, you know, thinking back, you know, to, to 1944, I guess it was, you know, as, as the Nazis were moving out of Paris, you know, the order from Hitler was burn it to the ground. Uh, you know, it's scorch earth policy. Is, is Putin of that ilk that, that he might yes. say, I've, I've lost this thing? Yes, I have no doubt in my mind that that's Vladimir Putin's end game if he can't get what he wants, is to burn it to the ground. Because to him, if I can't have it, nobody can. Is his That is his, I, I believe, his overriding mentality. Frightening, it really is. Brian J. Karen. Brian, it's always a pleasure. Uh, go to salon.com to read the piece that we were just talking about. And, of course, the book uh, called Free the Press, and uh, it's a great read as well. Always a pleasure, Brian. Take care of yourself, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. Sounds good. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus on a, an op-ed piece uh, that I read in theconversation.com uh, the other day, which talks and I, I think addresses a, an awful lot of concerns that we've had about athletics in the last little while. And uh, it's called, as a former elite gymnast, I know sport needs a cultural shift to ensure athlete safety. And uh, the author of that piece is Dr. Laura Meisner, who is uh, the director of the School of Kinesiology, rather, at Western University, and uh, she joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Uh, Dr. Meisner, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. Well, this is very timely, and I, I know in the piece you related some of your experiences and others uh, that you've worked with in the last little while. Uh, you know, we've heard of, of the pressure that are on athletes, elite athletes, not just necessarily on a professional level, and, and we've seen some of them actually say, okay, I need a timeout. You know, I just, I can't do this anymore. The pressure is just too immense. Uh, Andrea Bescu and others, of course, have, have done this sort of thing. And I think it addresses the, the, the need here to be cognizant of, of the impact that the sport itself has on, on the athlete, doesn't it? Right, absolutely. I mean, uh, performing at that elite level is very taxing uh, physically, mentally, and it can be very challenging, and particularly in an environment where uh, the expectations are so high to perform on a consistent basis. And there may not be the support when we feel that the environment isn't providing a level of safety that we'd like to see happen. And so um, we are starting to see athletes talk about that and step away from the sport, uh, which is very unfortunate that we're at this point. What was your experience? You were an elite athlete, a gymnast, and uh, did did you feel that kind of, I don't want to use the word pressure because there's always pressure to perform, we know that, uh, but sometimes the pressure can come in different forms. Right. Um, you know, to be fair, uh, I was very lucky in many respects when I was participating. I, I was I had wonderful coaches who really understood uh, my needs, my health concerns, uh, safety of it. But, you know, I can't say that that was everywhere. I, I was very cognizant that there were athletes who were fearful of their coaches, who were afraid to, to say they were hurting too much to continue or that they shouldn't compete because, you know, they were injured or they didn't feel safe in the moves or the skills that they were performing. And so, you know, they were living a very different uh kind of sport experience than than what I had at the time. And, you know, I was quite young in many respects and, and didn't really think too much about it until I got involved later in the sport as a coach and a judge and, and saw it from a very different perspective. And of course, then when I got into academia as a scholar, that also really changed my perspective on the things that I saw um, when I was a gymnast. 
Uh, right at the early part of your uh, your op-ed piece in the conversation, you talk about a recent development, of course, uh, where gymnasts, uh, world gymnasts, 70 former gymnasts, uh, penned a letter to Sport Canada calling for an end to the toxic culture in that sport. Now, we've, we've heard insinuations about that. Uh, did you get any inkling at all from a, from any of the, the, the people that were involved there or any of the people that you worked and competed with and against uh, about what kind of, of environment, what kind of toxicity there was there? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's well known and understood in this environment that um, it's a lot of pressure, um, a lot of pressure on young athletes, uh, often young girls, and a lot of um, male coaches. So there's a very significant power relationship that exists. Um, that conversation has gone on for a long time. And, and I've tried to point that out in the work that I've done uh, previously with some of my research. And then when I was involved in the sport as a judge, um, and the interesting piece around that, or uh, interesting, really, somewhat scary piece around that is it's often pushed aside as well that's that's just the sport that's just the way it is you know if it, it, you know people complain it's not a big deal or they're just they're just upset today um, and so I think that's been building for a long time and I think people were feeling and these gymnasts were feeling empowered finally to speak out we've seen others from other sports talk about this and you know obviously there's been some very high profile cases in the US around gymnastics um, and these athletes really just wanted to step forward and say, you know, enough is enough. Something needs to change. Um, Policy is not enough. Um, having some guidelines for coaches is not enough. The whole culture needs to change. Where do you draw that line? Because if you're a, an elite performer, you know, the, the, there are people within your realm, your coaches, etc., maybe even some family members that are going to say, look, you got to drive. You got to, you want to be the best. You, this is what you have to do. You know, 19 hours right. a day, on and on it goes. And, and we understand that there has to be a certain level of commitment to, we, you know, to, to attain those goals. But at the same time, when do you say, okay, just let's back off a little bit today? I mean, because some of them just are driving, driving, driving. I mean, I certainly I know parents of uh, some elite athletes I mean, who are living vicariously through their children. You know, I didn't get a chance to do that. Now, I want you to be uh, an all-star and, and you know, whatever the case may be and whatever the endeavor is. Uh, right, right. How do you how do you deal with that? And especially when you were coaching and judging, I'm sure you saw it on, on a pretty yeah. consistent basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very difficult to to change that culture because we have this assumption that you need to uh, push very hard, train very long hours, and particularly in a sport like gymnastics, where you have you know really multiple different sports almost in in one sport. There's different events; they require different skill sets, um, and a lot of things go on. So there's there's a notion that you have to train many many hours um, that might be problematic for a young athlete or for a developing body. And so you know, there's been guidelines put in place around thinking about how do we manage manage the developing body and making sure that there is a safe environment. But the key here is that it's, those decisions haven't been coming from athletes. Athletes haven't been at the center, uh, the ones being involved in the decision making, guiding the policies. Those have come from senior administrators, uh, policymakers, governments who haven't really been the ones experiencing what it feels like to be pushed and pressured by your coach, by your parents. So we need to put athletes at the center in order to make that change so that they can actually guide the decision-making processes and feel that they are in power of their own destiny. And uh, that's the part that's not working yet in sport. It is still really guided by adults, often driving young kids uh, in many, many sports to do things that are probably unsafe for them, aren't necessarily in their 
best overall health and well-being interest. They may be seemably the best to perform and to win medals, but not necessarily for the individual. So the athletes need to be really part of this conversation to help us make change in terms of the decision-making processes. But do those people that you just talked about, the administrators, the coaches, do they allow those young athletes to be part of that conversation? Well, we haven't seen that. Um, we've seen governing organizations have, you know, an athlete representative. You know, we do have an athlete's council uh, at met or different governing levels that helps with this. Um, but I think we're starting to see the pressure come from the sport community, from the athletes themselves who are stepping away and for penning these letters saying that this needs to change. Um, from my own experience as a judge, I, I watched athletes suffer and try to say to their coach, this is enough. It's too much. I, I hurting. Uh, this is, I feel unsafe doing these things, but it's very difficult for them to have a voice in an environment where they are very, very powerless. And I felt powerless even as, as a judge and as a scholar to say anything that would make change. So I hear that there is a need to change. I hope and you know, I really wish that there is an appetite for this. We are seeing calls to the federal government to have independent organizations involved in uh, some of these processes. So I think there's an appetite, but the culture itself is going to take a very long time to change because we have be we have people who have been involved in these sports for many, many, many years and have very strong beliefs about how we get success. And so that shift, that culture shift, is going to take a long time. What about the coaching itself, uh, doctor? I'm, I'm intrigued by that. Yeah, I mean, you can get a coaching certificate that says, okay, I've checked all these boxes. I did this course. I did this course. It doesn't okay. necessarily mean you're going to be a good coach. Uh, there's there's yeah. a human element to this. Uh, is, is, is that acknowledged in the profession? Um, it's sort of. I would say it sort of is acknowledged. Absolutely, these are human beings. But the checks and balances associated with coaching um, can be really problematic because, you know, we have seen where coaches have been uh, let go from one club because of their behavior, because of their toxic behavior, their unsafe behavior, and suddenly then show up in another club and are coaching at, a, at another competition. And I've seen that firsthand. And so I think there needs to be some other mechanisms in place to ensure that coaches are well prepared, uh, have the right mechanisms at hand to create a safe environment. There are a number of modules that are, you know, federal government and Sport Canada has put in place. We have a responsible coaching module. Some organizations have, have adopted these responsible coaching modules, which are mandatory for coaches to be involved in so that they learn, one, how to be good coaches, but also to how to spot and call out unsafe behavior on their colleagues and to work through a system that will help support individuals to become better. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it is somewhat an unregulated environment in terms of who can get into coaching, how we get involved in coaching. I mean, we know from our kids being involved in sport and particularly some sports where many of the people out there are volunteers just trying to do good. Yeah. And that's great. For, to a certain extent, but we do need to have some more checks and balances to make sure it's a safe environment. Uh, well, well, I guess one of the unfortunate side effects of, of byproducts of this uh, is you drive the, the athlete away from the sport altogether. Just say, I, I don't yeah. need this. Uh, yeah, I, I absolutely. was telling the story of a good friend of mine who had a, a son who, I think he was 14 at the time, per, apparently pretty good hockey player, played rep hockey. And at 14, he just told his dad, I'm, I'm done. I, I, I can't right. do this anymore. Right. And, right. and, and that well, what a tragedy yeah. then. I, uh, I don't know what would have happened to him had he continued, whether, you know, professional sports or whatever. But just to yeah. say, I, I can't stand the pressure. This is no good. 
you know, drive yeah, and coaches the driving extreme. You. And we talk about some sports. Yeah. Sports like hockey is, a, is an example where, you know, we grew up probably in a time where hockey was something you played in the winter and then you played other sports the rest of the year. And now we play, we have to specialize so early uh, supposedly within the system to become successful that it does, it pushes kids away. And we also know that the greatest level of dropout that we see is in young girls um, at the, the ages of early teenage years of dropping out of sport. And that's because of the pressure in the system, you know, the bodies that are then located within the system and how those are treated. And so we need to really think about what we're doing to kids and not only as coaches, as parents in that system as well. We are complicit in it if we don't step forward and do more in that environment to make it safe. I had a conversation with Bob Yor a few years ago when he was on our show, and uh, and he made uh, that very point. And now this is Bob Yor, an elite hockey player, but he, he says, you know, these these kids right now they're they're on skates twelve hours of the of uh, twelve yeah. months of the year. Yeah. You know, they finish yeah. the winter season, and then it's skating school, then it's hockey school, then it's yeah. and he says that's what drives them away. He says, you know, yeah. drop you know drop the skates in April and go play baseball, go do something right. else. Just you know, yeah. and and I guess we tend to lose track of that sometimes, don't we? Yeah, we do tend to lose track of that because we're so focused on specialization and retaining athletes and thinking that that's the only way we're going to be successful. When we have to realize, in fact, actually, we have better outcomes because we have happier kids, we have you know more well-rounded kids, and in fact, we have better physical literacy when we allow them and enable them to play and to do things outside of a single sport. Um, you know, there's been cries, there's been calls for that for a long time, but the sport system is reluctant to give up that power and you know let kids really be kids uh, so that they can develop into good people and good athletes. And so I think it's about thinking about people and individuals and person-centered focus first and then athlete development. Uh, this is a fascinating piece, and you mentioned the, the letter that uh, 70 former gymnasts had sent to Sport Canada. Mm-hmm. Is anybody listening? Well, I did hear, uh, you know, some some strong words coming from the federal government on uh, making uh, an independent governing body that would support um, reporting. Um, I'm see, hearing national sport governing bodies uh, step forward. Uh, in some of my other work, I do work quite closely with the Canadian Paralympic Committee, and I was extremely pleased to see the statement came out from the CEO yesterday about their support for an independent body that will help manage and develop an athlete-centered system to make change. So I do think that people are listening, uh, but it's going to take more than policies. It's going to take more than words. It's going to take time and it's going to take a real rethinking of that culture. So I, I think people need to understand that this change isn't going to happen overnight. It is something that's going to have to happen over the long term. And I do hope they're listening. And I mean, I did my research on this back when I was a master's student many, many years ago and made those calls to Sport Canada and Gymnastics Canada that they needed to make changes then. And 20 years later, we're still having the conversation. So I hope it's not falling on deaf ears yet again. There's one line in your uh, op-ed piece that just jumped out at me here about uh, obedience, tolerance and compliance is what is expected in this culture. That's got to change. It has to change. Uh, I felt it all the way through. And I, you know, perhaps, and that's why I feel complicit in not doing anything more when I was involved more. It does have to change. And, but with ads right now, that's often what we expect of athletes is, is compliance and tolerance. And that has to change that they have a voice to say, no, this is not okay. And we need to do better. Go to theconversation.com, by the way, and can read this for yourself. Doctor, a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you so much for this today. Uh, Thanks for having me. It was nice to be here. Take care. Dr. Laura Meisner, the director of the School of Kinesiology at Western University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.
The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.